You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. We all know the girls that I am talking about. Well, they are time bombs and they are ticking. And the only questions when... They'll blow up, and they'll blow up We know that without a doubt Cause they're those girls, yeah, you know those girls That let their emotions get the best of them And I contrived some sort of a plan To help my fellow men Let's get emotional girls to all women Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 443 of this podcast. Today is Monday, August 1st, 2022. And that was a little bit of Reliant K, some stuff I used to listen to back in my high school days, actually. Great song called Mood Rings and a great intro for this episode where we're going to talk about emotions and more specifically, we're going to talk about anger, fear, and anxiety and whether they are sins the Christian should repent of. But first, I want to start off with addressing some, we'll call them leftovers or carryovers from our last episode. Episode 442, I talked about nuthetic counseling after a week filled with very robust dialogue with my cousin Tim. Tim Mullet is a minister, also a biblical counselor trained in nuthetic counseling. He is also the host of the Bible Bashed podcast, and he and I may not see eye to eye on everything, but then again, Maybe that is exactly the reason we should be talking about this, truth be told, because we should let iron sharpen iron. So is one man to another. Iron sharpening iron is what happens when we cross-examine. The first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. And that cuts both ways. That is a two-way street. So that means that some of the ways that I'm thinking can be challenged and maybe corrected, maybe strengthened on other points by interaction with someone who is going to disagree with my conclusions and also maybe not find all of the evidences I'm considering to be as relevant or persuasive and vice versa as well. From me to my cousin Tim, there have been a lot of probably hard questions in some ways, probably easy questions in other ways because from my cursory understanding of nuthetic counseling, a lot of the concerns that I have are adjacent to, if they're not identical to, a lot of the typical criticisms of nuthetic counseling. But it does go both ways. And Tim, to his credit, listened to my episode about nuthetic counseling, and he sent me some messages in reply over Facebook Messenger where we've been having this robust dialogue back and forth privately. 
And I want to bring some of the points and comments that he made to the fore on this podcast. And I won't necessarily argue with uh, all of what he has to say here, but I do want to represent his statement accurately with regards to what I said about Nuthetic Counseling and his position specifically. I don't want to misrepresent his position in any way, even as I am trying to engage with whether I agree with that position. It's one thing to accurately portray somebody's position and disagree with it. It's quite another thing to strawman someone else's position. I don't want to strawman anyone else's position. I want to accurately understand and engage with what he actually thinks of these things. But first of all, before I get into reading through some of the highlights from his response to my last episode, on the front end, I will give you a definition for DSM-5 because he will refer to DSM-5 categories and definitions uh, throughout this. And you should know what, (laughs) what the DSM is. DSM stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. That's what DSM is. So DSM-5 is just the fifth edition. That five stands for fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. This is the encyclopedia, dictionary, reference guide, if you will, for psychology when it comes to mental disorders. They look to this, and it's been updated a few times because that is to say, we are still figuring some things out. We do not know fully, even as we are fully known. God knows us fully. That's an important thing for us all to remember. No matter which side of the debate we're on, no matter how well-developed our position, we know in part. We will know fully, even as we are fully known, but we know in part, the Apostle Paul writes. So without further ado... I'm just going to read through uh, a number of things he sent to me, which I think are worth consideration. I did a little bit of editing for the sake of uh, clarity and being easy for me to follow, but this is uh, what he had to say. So first of all, Tim says, we are talking past each other because we are using terms in different ways. So he says, when he speaks about anxiety and depression, He's attempting to use the terms as a psychologist would use the terms. And then one mistake he thinks I'm making in our last episode is that I'm using these terms, anxiety and depression, in a more popular way. And that may well be. I am not a trained psychologist. I took gen psych in college at Cedarville University. Uh, Dr. Furman did a wonderful job. Uh, Just actually, as an aside, I found out that he passed away due to a heart attack back in 2020. I'm very sad to hear that. Uh, I would have loved to look him up and just convey my appreciation, but I trust he is with the Lord, and I look forward to shaking his hand again someday. But uh, I'm not an expert in psychology. I have studied it as a layman uh, off and on over the years. I am probably using anxiety and depression in more of a popular way, Although I will say, not to argue with every point (laughs) Tim has here, but as I told him privately, uh, these two things are adjacent. The clinical definitions and the popular uh, meaning of these terms, uh, they are conversant with one another, and there is some overlap. So for me to use the more popular definition and understanding of these things, 
you know, it, it is distinct from a clinical definition that he would work with as a biblical counselor in nuthetic counseling. Uh, it is distinct from the way he's using these terms, but that is to say as well that these things are related. They do have a relationship back and forth. The popular does affect the DSM uh, definitions of things, and we look no further. Uh, we need look no further than the way that DSM has dropped some categories of uh, you know mental condition with regards to sexuality and gender. Uh, they've changed some of their definitions in much the same way that Merriam-Webster's has. And so you can change the DSM-5 uh, or, you know, if and when there's a DSM-6, that could be changed and updated. But truth be told, brass tacks, rubber meets the road, real politique, uh, some of what will be changed and why will be affected by the popular conception of these things. There's just no two ways about it. But not to belabor that point, moving on. Tim, my cousin, says, for an individual to be diagnosed with clinical depression, all medical causes must be ruled out and the depression must be distinguished from bereavement. Now, that's an important point. Uh, you know, again, with regards to not strawmanning his position and this school of thought, that's an important point. We should not suppose if there are uh, qualifiers in there, hey, we are ruling out medical causes. Uh, we are also ruling out bereavement. Somebody's grieving a loved one who has passed away. We are not calling that depression. That is not clinical depression. Okay? We're not just being harsh with people who are weeping and sad and very dejected at the loss of somebody who was near and dear to them. A spouse, for instance, a child, a parent, a sibling, etc., etc. He goes on. When I am speaking of depression, I am not speaking about all sadness or sorrow. I am speaking about the psychological label in the DSM-5, which is a label given to, quote, sudden unexplained sadness, end quote, that is not the result of bereavement and has no medical cause, point taken. There are a variety of medical conditions that can produce a depressed mood, including cancer, thyroid problems, heart disease, etc., but when a depressed mood is the result of a medical condition, it is not clinical depression. Okay, point taken. Though, <laughs> here's my pushback, all right? And this is not necessarily either here or there. This may be neither here nor there <laughs> that you know of, that you know of. You may have some not very competent doctors or some not very motivated doctors uh, let's say, for instance, if you are in a part of the country where there's just not a lot of access to good doctoring, for instance, let's say rural eastern Montana, you may not have a lot of access to specialists who are going to test for conditions outside of the norm. So mention th uh, you know, thyroid problems, sure. Mention cancer, sure. These are much more common, typical things that we test for with regularity, especially when the symptoms line up. Uh, you get into something a little bit more obscure. You get into something that may be genetic at the root, or it may be due to the balance of good and bad bacteria in the gut. Uh, you, you may need to look far afield, and not everybody's going to do that. And so you may go looking for a medical diagnosis for depression, 
and you may not get it. And in the absence of a medical diagnosis, you may have, as he attests, psychologists who are quick to say, <laughs> this is clinical depression because we don't see any medical cause for it. Uh, this is, you know, this, this needs an asterisk in it because the qualifier is how hard did you look and did you go to the right people to look for a potential medical cause if it just doesn't add up otherwise? It's, you know, it's, it's not a spiritual condition. It's not, you know, our thought life, except insofar as the fact that we're feeling awful is having a feedback loop with our thought life and how we're feeling. But again, moving on. Tim says, further, it would be a profound mistake to think that biblical counselors consider all sadness to be sinful. There are different types of sorrow, godly sorrow, worldly sorrow, sorrow that results from suffering, despair, godly or hopeless grief, etc. Our approach, he says, is not to simply tell people who have a depressed mood to repent. Biblical counseling deals with sin and suffering. When we speak of anxiety, we are interacting with the DSM-5 category of, quote, generalized anxiety disorder, end quote. Generalized anxiety disorder is, quote, excessive anxiety or worry that occurs for more days than not for at least six months, end quote. This label is distinguished from panic disorder, social phobia, obsessive compulsive disorder, separation anxiety, etc., etc., and the disturbance is not due to the direct physiological effects of a substance, a general medical condition, again, e.g. hypothyroidism, for instance. As with clinical depression, generalized anxiety disorder is the label for anxiety and worry that does not have a medical cause. Now, he makes a reference here to an episode of his podcast, which you are definitely welcome to go check out, the Bible Bashed podcast, Is Depression Real? Now, I will say this, Tim, if you're listening, which I trust you probably are, in part because you've been listening to some of the other episodes of mine here recently. Uh, I, I've told Tim this too privately, so it's not going to be news to him. But I will just say, if you see some of the titles for some of his episodes and they seem inflammatory or um, you know more hyped up, uh, I, I will give him full marks on the episodes of his podcast I've listened to, which is not very many. It's just two at this point, though I've got a couple more he's sent to me that I need to get to soon. Uh, you know, when I've listened to the two podcast episodes so far of Tim's, his tone is very measured. I think he is trying to be uh, conscientious and diligent in the way that he unpacks these things, uh, not being a firebrand or, a, you know, bomb thrower or anything like that. But, uh, you know, the titles of the episodes are going to grab your attention. Is depression real? You know, don't necessarily write it off if you're like, ah, oh, yes, depression is real. How dare he even question, you know, just maybe take a listen uh, as I need to myself, because if he makes these distinctions more uh, explicit in that episode, and that's where he's directing me, then I should go check that out and hear what he has to say. But again, moving on, Tim says, when we speak about anxiety, we distinguish anxiety and worry, which are both lumped together under the DSM-5 definition of general anxiety disorder. We understand that anxiety portion of the label to be better defined as the fear of judgment that results from a defiled conscience and the worry portion to be 
the worry that the scriptures tell us to avoid. We distinguish these two sinful responses from the godly genuine concern, which we would see embodied by Jesus' pre-crucifixion and Paul's use of the expression genuine concern in Philippians 2.20. And more on that uh, later, <laughs> once we get through uh, Tim's response here, uh, I do have more of a comment on Philippians 2.20, but for right now, I would just say, I feel like this is a little bit of a semantics game. Uh, it does seem to me as though we are uh, arguing semantics. That said, maybe we need to, at some point, argue semantics. And I don't say that to be uh, sarcastic. I say the way that we use words, how we define our terms, and what words we use to distinguish things that are in separate categories and put them in the correct categories, uh, that is important. And it isn't to be taken for granted always. Sometimes uh, we can get category confusion, and that is something we should all want to avoid, myself no less than others I'm encouraging along the same lines. So I would say I feel like we're arguing semantics a little bit by calling Jesus sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane concern <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yes, concern. Uh, that seems like a kind of uh, Britishism where it's a little bit of an understatement. I would say he maybe was not suffering from the clinical definition of anxiety and depression, but I would say sweating drops of blood. That's a pretty extreme form of anxiety, not for no reason, but however we reconcile the apparent contradiction, not actual contradiction, but the apparent contradiction, we cannot ascribe sinfulness to the Savior in that moment. He is not sinning, whatever we want to call it. He is not sinning to have the emotional and physiological response to the stresses on him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is, by the way, taking his request to the Father in prayer but nevertheless, not our will, but his be done. Moving on. Tim says, and like the DSM-5, we also distinguish anxiety and worry from anxious feelings, which might be described as simple physiological distress resulting from pathology. Now, he says another thing here next, which I disagree with, but I'm not going to stubbornly disagree with it. I want to think about it and consider it even as I disagree with it. My initial onset reaction response is to disagree with this. Uh, but nevertheless, let's consider how he says that I am blurring these distinctions and basically talking about anxiety in the popular use of the term. He says, thus, the example you gave of your wife is neither DSM-5 depression or DSM-5 general anxiety disorder. You were talking about a medical condition. We are talking about mental disorders. And here he's talking in reference to the fact that my wife uh, for several years, did not have a correct diagnosis of a genetic uh, condition that she had. Her MTHFR gene had mutations in two spots. <laughs> uh, those affect the metabolism of folate. That causes issues. So also she had SIBO, and she had almost none of several strains of good bacteria the body needs so also, she had an overgrowth of bacteria in her small intestine. And these are things which 
can manifest in very unusual ways physiologically and also mentally and emotionally as a consequence, especially when you're talking about a prolonged illness that you have symptoms for, but you don't know what's driving those symptoms. And then you're frustrated and you're just not feeling well, but you don't know why you're not feeling well. And you're frustrated with the doctors, you're frustrated with yourself, you're frustrated with the fact that you don't seem to be getting any better no matter what you try. My pushback on this would be to say the popular use of the term anxiety and the clinical use of the term anxiety insofar as she did not have a medical diagnosis for a period of time. She would have been, I presume, and correct me if I'm wrong, please do, but I presume uh, she would have been diagnosed with clinical depression or generalized anxiety disorder. And so insofar as she didn't have a medical diagnosis yet, we have to be very, very careful in how we relate to people who may not have a medical dis- they might they may not have a medical diagnosis just yet, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that they don't have a physical condition that is driving the physiological response, including an emotional response, including a mental response, because yes, we are spiritual beings, we are also physical beings, both and both and together, not either or. That's my big point here. But moving on. Tim says, and I'm not offended by this. I want to really grapple with it. He says the sola scriptura uh, distinction that I draw in my last episode is a caricature. Namely, uh, I imply, and this is fair, I, I do imply that the nuthetic counseling view of psychology uh, has a kind of solo scriptura uh, flavor to it. Now, that could be because I'm not understanding nuthetic counseling. That also could be because nuthetic counseling is not correctly understanding how to relate to a field of study like psychology. Now, it could be both. It could be either. It could be neither. Uh, and we just talked past each other, as he said at the outset. But he says, we say in our podcast, our psychologists literally demon spawn or whatever we called it. <laughs> what did I tell you about the titles? It was actually much more calm and, and measured than uh, the title would imply. It was like something to the effect of, are psychologists literally the spawn of Satan or something? Uh, I would call clickbaity, but <laughs> the tone of the discussion was much more even keeled <laughs> once I got into it. <laughs> there is no necessary relationship between psychology and counseling. Right, So that's their position. He says, that's what we say in this episode. There is no necessary relationship between psychology and counseling. All right. That's your position. Now, a qualifier and a clarification. Tim says, this is different from saying that it is sinful to listen to psychologists or that there is nothing that a biblical counselor can learn from the psychologist. All right. I'm listening. I, I am... Willing to grant you that. I listen to psychologists all the time, Tim says. I have to study what they are saying in order to do what I do. We believe the scriptures are sufficient to counsel. Further, this shouldn't be heard to be a rejection of doctors. We believe that there are any number of valid medical conditions that can cause weird behavior that a biblical counselor should be aware of. Okay, I'm glad to hear that, right? Like that's one of the big things where I'm just like, uh, okay, like 
Do you take that into account? Is that factored in? Are you taking sufficient attention for that concern? I'm glad that's on your radar. He points out, though, he says, as you read the DSM, what you will realize is that the vast majority of the labels are simple descriptions of thoughts and behaviors that are used once the medical tests come back empty. Okay, now we're getting somewhere, right? It's that once the medical tests come back empty, that is the pivot point for me where I say, let's just be very, very cautious. Psychologist or nuthetic counselor, it really makes little difference to me. Let's be very careful when the medical tests come back empty that we're not rushing to throw something in there and just see what sticks, right? Let's be compassionate towards people who are suffering and not be hasty. Not to say that the folks I'm addressing are hasty as a general rule, but whether you're talking about a traditional psychologist in the mainstream and their view of nuthetic counselors, or you're talking about nuthetic counselors and their view of psychiatry, especially in the prescription of psychotropic drugs, Either way, certainly both of these camps that I'm addressing regard one another as sometimes overhasty, if not as a rule, generally overhasty. So I think there must be some basis <laughs> for both of those uh, objections between the two camps that sometimes you guys are too quick to push this as a treatment plan and you're reductionistic and overly simplistic. But I digress. Tim says, we are interacting with those labels. And here he's talking about the labels in the DSM-5. We are interacting with those labels. We are not rejecting real medical science. And that's good, right? That's good. It's important to note. Glad to hear that. Now, I'm not going to read through, for the sake of time in this episode, everything else that uh, he's got in addition to what I just read for you. But I will say just quickly... Part of the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria for generalized anxiety disorder and acute depression, clinical depression, is that you have you know, several, if you're an adult, uh, far fewer actually if you're a child, and that is curious that the, the standard of proof is lowered when we're talking about uh, diagnosing children. I, I think that might be um, a mistake actually. I think maybe the burden of proof should be higher when we're talking about children because of the ramifications, the outsized influence that a treatment plan early on in a child's life may have on the rest of their life. Uh, nevertheless, one of the big things to focus on here is excessive anxiety and worry, for instance, occurring more days than not for at least six months about a number of events or activities such as work or school performance, etc. Excessive is subjective. Uh, also, occurring more days than not for at least six months uh, about a number of events or activities, you know, for at least six months about a number of events or activities, your capacity to engage those events and activities being potentially affected by a medical diagnosis that you don't have yet, but it actually, you know, it, it is out there, right? The truth is out there like X-Files uh, regarding, you know, here again, I think we should be really, really diligent. Let's be gentle. Let's be holistic. Let's be circumspect. Let's study to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed of rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth means not rushing to conclusions 
And that is all the more I will say about my cousin Tim's response to last episode for now. We may have more to say as we go in some future episodes, but I want to move on (laughs) to the broader topic for this episode of negative emotions, negative emotions, three specifically, anger, anxiety, and fear. Now, I would dare say some people enjoy feeling angry. Some people do. They get addicted to their anger and they wouldn't necessarily call anger a negative emotion. They find it very useful. They don't really mind it. It doesn't bother them. It might bother the people around them, but then that has its own benefits, right? There's upsides, there's perks, there's advantages to being angry and other people getting out of your way or giving you what you want. Anxiety, uh, you know, maybe it has some upsides as well to where you can say, "Ah, I'm just feeling really, really anxious. I'm worried. I'm just really uneasy. And you can use that as a lever as well in the relationships in your life or as a fallback position to not do things. Fear, I put adjacent to anger and anxiety because I think all three of these are closely related. I think they're close cousins. But I would say personally, subjectively, maybe, Uh, I agree that these three are all negative emotions. That isn't to say that I hold that they are always sinful. I don't think that's correct, and I'll explain why. It is also not to say that I think that fear and anxiety and anger are never appropriate. But it is to say that when they are appropriate emotions, it is typically in relation to folly or sin, or some kind of loss, which is not good in the strictest definition of the word. It is not good. It, you know, it belongs more in the category of when Jesus asks, you know, which of you fathers being evil, when your son asks you for a fish, gives him a serpent instead. Which of you fathers, when your son asks for bread, gives him a stone instead? right? That's not good. You fathers are evil, but even you are not that evil. How much more so your father in heaven, who is a good father, as opposed to us, he's morally perfect. How much more so our father in heaven, when we ask him for things that we need, will he grant our requests? Nevertheless, don't misunderstand what I say next regarding anger, anxiety, and fear And whether Christians should repent of these emotions as being a accusation that the contrary position is my cousin Tim's, right? I don't mean to suggest that. I'm just staking out my position over and against a position which would say anger, anxiety, and fear are categorically sinful behaviors, because I don't hold that that is the case. And I'll explain why. First of all, let's start with Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. The Apostle Paul writes, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, 
due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now notice here, right? That is Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. Notice Paul says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now what is that? Futility of their minds. They don't understand. They don't connect causes and effects. They don't put two and two together. They don't connect the dots. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. That is to say, their hardness of heart is that they ignore the truth. They ignore what is good. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. They stubbornly ignore what is true and what is good. You must no longer walk like that. That is futile. That means fruitless. That means pointless. That means to no good end. That will not work. That does not produce goodness. It does not produce happiness. That does not produce peace. That does not produce life in God. And then he says, therefore, <laughs> having put away all falsehood, in other words, not being the way that the Gentiles are, stubbornly ignorant, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Now, can I just say, I think this language, this way of wording things, let, let, is very interesting. What an interesting way to frame people telling one another the truth. Let them. Can I say, I think this is something of the basis for defending the human right, especially the Christian liberty, especially the Christian imperative towards free speech? Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. In other words, 
don't abuse one another for telling the truth to each other. We are members one of another. And then the next verse, be angry and do not sin. Now, when I read this and it says be angry, I have to see that as a permission slip. You have permission to be angry. You do not have permission to sin. If these two things in the same sentence fragment are juxtaposed, then I understand anger to be distinct from sin. In other words, if anger were itself sinful, then we would not be able to separate out, be angry and do not sin. It would be, be angry and you have sinned. And don't do that. Therefore, don't be angry because it's sinful. It doesn't say that. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, you're not holding on to it. You've heard the phrase, don't go to bed angry. It's a good marital advice, by the way. Don't go to bed angry with each other. You're going to wake up angry. Be angry and do not sin. Give no opportunity to the devil. So if you hold on to anger, what you will find is that you have created a vulnerability or you have allowed a vulnerability in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, which the enemy of our souls will seek to exploit and he will try to tempt us through our anger to sin. So then we see down below, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Now, as fits the occasion, an important detail, <laughs> as fits the occasion, must mean that it is not always 24-7 positive encouraging, strictly speaking, or strictly as the most optimistic among us, the most cheerful among us, the most committedly happy among us would define it as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So the big idea is that you need to be responsible in the way that you affect the people around you. The things you say will affect the people who hear the things you say. And that's on you, buddy. However you feel. If you're angry, put the anger away. And what does it say in verse 31? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So, in other words, you feel angry, put that away. You're not sinning just to be angry, but you should still put it away because by your anger, through your anger, you will be tempted to sin. That's what this means. It doesn't mean that anger is in and of itself, sin. But if you stubbornly hold on to your anger and then use it as an excuse, there really is no excuse for sinning while angry and then saying, oh, but I was really angry. The anger made me do it is no more compelling than the devil made me do it. Because actually, <laughs> if you disobey this, the two may be one and the same as far as statements go. You gave opportunity to the devil by holding on to your anger, your bitterness, your wrath, your clamor, your slander, your malice. Instead, I think in contrast, we're told to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, 
as God in Christ forgave us. Moving on, James 1.19-27 also is terribly relevant for interpreting correctly, holistically, in a hermeneutically sound way. Ephesians 4.17-32, James 1.19-27, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So here again we have this theme. We return again to this theme. Not that you never get angry, but that you are slow to anger And why? In part, this is the other side of the coin. When you hold on to anger, you give opportunity to the devil. But when you are slow to anger, you are more liable to have a life that is marked by the kind of righteousness God requires. And when this says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, in the next paragraph, I see that. And what that tells me in relation to the preceding about being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, it tells me it is not enough to know that these are sound principles. It is not enough to have heard you have to do this. Do it. Don't just hear it and say, oh, yeah, I agree with that. That's good. That's good. That's really good. No, hear it and put it into practice. Show me your faith by your works. And as if that wasn't (laughs) explicit enough, the next paragraph says, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, in other words, doesn't control his words, doesn't control himself with regards to what he says, he is lying to himself, deceives his heart, deceives his heart. Read also GSV, Garrett Standard Version. He's lying to himself. You're kidding yourself. This person's religion is worthless. You think you're a very pious person. You think you're a very godly person. You think you're a very religious person, but you don't control yourself with what you say and what you don't say. You're lying to yourself. You want to get very religious, get religious about taking care of widows and orphans in their need and keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's the kind of religion that God wants. Moving on. With regards to anxiety, and this is one Tim and I have been talking about quite a lot this past week. Again, just to drive the point home, emphasis through repetition. I am not saying that he is 
agreeing with an overly broad definition of anxiety and then saying that that overly broad definition of anxiety is sinful per se, but I am rather speaking to a position I would disagree with whether or not it is his position. If it is his position, I disagree with it. If it's not his position, great. I still disagree with this position, and I think some people hold to this position, just like there's a distinction between the popular conception of anxiety and the clinical conception of anxiety. And you can have the populace, uh, the <laughs> you, you can have the uh, masses <laughs> think they understand what psychologists are getting at, but they really are being overly broad in their definitions compared with the clinical terms uh, and how the clinicians use them and understand them. Uh, so also, you could have biblical counselors who push back on what clinical psychologists are saying, secular psychologists, mainstream psychologists are saying, and the layperson, the common person in the pews will hear that and similarly misunderstand what's being said and say, ah, well, to be anxious at all then is a sin at all, ever, at all, at all. And that can't be true. That just can't be true in the broadest definition of the term anxiety. I don't necessarily want to embrace the broadest definition of anxiety, and I certainly don't want to straw man nuthetic counseling. But just to be very, very clear, I consider here Isaiah 35, 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Now here, again, as will be, I think, all the clearer as we get into passages concerning fear, anxiety is close to fear. It may be somewhat distinct, but it is a close cousin. And where this says, be strong, fear not, and that that is what we should tell the anxious-hearted person your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Where that is what we should tell the person who is marked by anxiety, I understand the prescription perhaps to be more rightly, or at least firstly, encouragement in the strictest meaning of the word. They need to be given courage. They don't need to necessarily be given a stern rebuke. They need to be given courage. Their anxiety is fear, and no, they should not fear. That's why this says, be strong, fear not, but that is to say as well, they need courage instead of fear. You can't just say, we're going to create a vacuum here, drive out the fear. We also need to have courage. And what is that process called by which we give courage to one another as Christians? We call it encouragement. To use the word encouragement versus rebuke does need to be considered uh, in terms of what merits one or the other. The rebuke is reserved for those who are being stubborn, willful, hard-hearted. Also, a rebuke carries with it a sense of urgency, which has to do with the severity of the sin or error, and also the condition of the soul of the person who is committing that sin or that error. Encouragement is a much gentler term. And sometimes people use these 
interchangeably, and I don't think that that's wise. Sometimes people need a rebuke when you think they need encouragement. (laughs) They need to be encouraged to repent, plain and simple. I agree sometimes people think, especially today in our K-Love Christianity mainstream mentality, people think they need encouragement. What they really need is a rebuke. But so also, we don't want to overcompensate and have the pendulum swing simplistically the opposite direction, where when what people really need is encouragement, we give them the rebuke, just because we're trying to compensate for the mainstream with everybody in our sphere. Deal appropriately with the people who need encouragement in your circle. Also deal appropriately with the people who need a rebuke in your circle. Luke 12.22 also is relevant here. And he, this is speaking of Jesus, said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds. And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So note here, Luke 12, 22 through 31, Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. But then what does he follow up with after that? Do not be anxious about your life. He explains, he unpacks it. He makes the case. Here's how you should understand these things. Yes, he says, oh, you of little faith. There's a chide there. It's not either or. He is telling them they have little faith. But he's also being, I think, very gentle and very compassionate with them, even as he says, don't be anxious. Don't be worried. I believe firmly that the way Jesus is talking about the antidote for anxiety here is instructive, not just what he's saying, but how he's saying it, how he's unpacking what he's saying is instructive here. So also consider Philippians 2, 25 through 30. Paul writes, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, 
lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, what is this? Right? What is this? (laughs) Well, for starters, we have Paul admitting to being anxious. We have Paul admitting to being anxious. Now, he's not dominated by his anxiety, but he uses the word anxious. And I think it's important to consider what he means by his use of the word anxious here. Also, I think it's important to recognize that he is acting in such a way as to reduce his anxiety. Is he remembering things which are true about God, about Christ? Is he remembering the gospel? Is he remembering what Christ said? Yes. But he's also taking active measures to reduce his own anxiety. He wants the church in Philippi to be glad, to rejoice at seeing Epaphroditus again. So he's sending Epaphroditus back. He wants them to be glad to see Epaphroditus. Also, (laughs) Paul wants to be less anxious. And that's all right, that he's taking a practical step towards the end of being less anxious. But then, in the same letter, near the very end, near the closing of this letter, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Philippians 4, verse 4 through 7. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, (laughs) a couple of possibilities. One, the word anxious, used in Philippians 4.6, is a different Koine Greek word than that Koine Greek word that is translated as anxious as well in Philippians 2, verse 28. That's a possibility. We can verify that. We can confirm that pretty easily. For instance, I pull up this Bible app I've got on my phone. It's called the Literal Word Bible app. I look up Philippians chapter 2. Verse 28, here this word anxious is translated concerned. The word in the Greek is alupos. It means free from grief. Then I look up Philippians 4, verse 6, and here in this translation, I find the word anxious in the Koine Greek is merimnao, first the definition is to be anxious. 
And there are several different words which can be paired with this word to give us a sense of the meaning that's intended. But the first is to be anxious. The second is to care for. So we have two different uses potentially of the word, which in some translations is anxious in both places. Like for instance, in the ESV, anxious in both places. And again, this goes back to somewhat of the possibility that Tim and I are talking past one another, where I say anxious and I mean one thing and he says anxious and he means possibly a couple of different things. Or I say anxious and I mean several different things or a whole spectrum of possible things. I'm describing a whole spectrum of emotion. He's talking more narrowly in a clinical sense. Either way, we see in Philippians 2.25, Paul recognizing a certain kind of care and concern, which some translators put into English as anxious. And then we see in Philippians 4.6, do not be anxious about anything. And again, I would just emphasize people are complex we are complicated. I am complicated. I can attest to that as a, something of a subject matter expert on myself. And yet notice the way these two passages frame the issue of anxiety or concern or whatever you want to call it. We can give it a euphemism if we would like. If, if we want to distinguish between one kind of concern and another kind of concern, it's really beside the point for me, except where the distinction is concerned, that there is a kind of concern that is appropriate. There's a kind of anxiety, if you will, depending on your translation or your use of the term, there's a kind of anxiety which is sanctified and which is appropriate. And yet you you should still not (laughs) camp out on it, right? You shouldn't get so fixated on the appropriateness of your being concerned, whatever you want to call it. You know, it reminds me of asking my wife sometimes, hey, are you upset with me? No. Okay, are you angry with me? No. Are you frustrated, irritated, agitated, annoyed? Like, I just keep looking for synonyms. And at a certain point, she just she's like, okay, well, <laughs> if you keep on giving me synonyms, I will be. I am I am growing irritated, actually, as you keep asking the same question again and again with different synonyms. <laughs> so also here, I, call it anxiety, if you will. Call it concern, if you will. The big idea is not what we call it. The big idea is the character of the sentiment itself and its relationship to the truth. I really don't care so much what we call it as I do care what the relationship of that way of feeling and relating is to the truth and the objective standard of goodness found in God's word. Now, someone may disagree and say, well, I believe that God's word says be anxious for nothing. And that means that to be anxious is sin. But again, we have to be careful about how we define these things. That's my prerogative. If we 
define these things sometimes too narrowly, sometimes too broadly, we may start along a line of thought which would ascribe sin to our Lord and Savior himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that should not be. And I'm not talking here primarily about clinical definitions tied to six months track record, more days than not, all that. That is somewhat arbitrary and subjective. Someone might get to three weeks and their family members and friends and fellow church members and their pastor may feel like it's been six months. But the point is not that six months is the clinical definition any more than we find nothing whatsoever in the scriptures about six months. I mean, look, for instance, at Philippians 4, 6. When it says, do not be anxious about anything, there's nothing in there about six months at all. <laughs> do not be anxious about anything so long as you are anxious about things for five months and three weeks. You're fine. <laughs> it doesn't say that. It says, do not be anxious about anything. So the character and the quality of the admonition here, I think, has much more to do with the character of the warnings about anger, actually. And again, I think anxiety is a negative emotion, much like anger is a negative emotion. The key question for me is, how are we relating to truth and goodness? And to some extent, how you feel is beside the point. The idea of rebuking people for the way they're feeling feels about as novel and misguided to me as the idea of affirming people in their emotions. I don't think we're on the right track. If our focus is primarily on their relationship to their feelings, first and foremost. Now, if their feelings become the overriding thing, the dominant thing, and that's what Nuthetic Counseling is getting at, is that you cannot let your feelings control you, and your feelings are not necessarily the be-all, end-all. See also Carl R. Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. See also a well-documented history of emotivism and the consequences of the Enlightenment, putting too much stock in I think, therefore I am, as I see it. The big idea is not that we either affirm and embrace our emotions as the be-all, end-all, nor that we would rebuke certain emotions, because I think both and are two sides of the same coin in some respect. In some respect, both and are missing the point, because the big question to my mind, regardless what anyone else thinks, regardless what the Nuthetic counselors are really saying, depending on which one you ask, regardless what the clinical psychologists are saying in the mainstream, in the secular, in the pop-sci circle, depending on who you ask, the big question for me is, how are we relating to truth and goodness? And are we willing to do the work of submitting our minds and our hearts and our souls and our bodies to the Most High God, regardless how we feel? And, more to the point, regardless who agrees with me or disagrees with me, because my big concern is not to either flatter nor to oppose anyone in particular, 
but more so to agree with God, if our primary concern is similarly to agree with God and to subject ourselves to God, regardless how we feel, regardless our personal opinions, setting Christ apart in our hearts as holy, is it not possible that the cart and the horse are other than what the zeitgeist, the spirit of this age, have been telling us all our lives? And I I don't mean to say that anyone in particular, again, is saying something to the contrary, but I'm just saying that is my position. And if someone disagrees with that position, then I disagree with them. And that is an inescapable consequence of my having taken the position I have. I'm willing to amend my position if I'm mistaken on some point as to what the truth and goodness are according to God's word objectively. But again, too, where Paul himself admits to a certain kind of anxiety, as we would call it, and yet says, do not be anxious about anything, and also where we see Christ himself saying, do not be anxious about your life, even when we're talking about food, even when we're talking about your physical health, even when we're talking about you having adequate clothing. When he says, do not be anxious about your life, and then he proceeds to explain why you should not be anxious about your life, I think not just what he's saying, but the way in which he's saying it is instructive. And that's where I'm coming from. I see the way in which Christ is talking about this, the way he approaches it, and I find it very encouraging, and I find it very comforting, and I find it very compassionate, and I'm not so sure that all of us relate, whether we're talking secular psychologists or we're talking some who would say they are biblical counselors. I am not so sure that all of us are quite so compassionate as Christ is towards those who are anxious for something. And all the more as we enter into deeper and deeper, and only the Lord knows how deep it goes this time around, as we enter deeper and deeper into a recession, economically, concerns about food and clothing and shelter and the basic necessities become far less abstract and far more concrete. Therefore, the imperative to grapple with, to reckon with, not just the substance, but the form of how Christ addresses those who are anxious, we do well to pay attention to, we do well to reckon with. If he is our guide, he is our example, he is our Lord, we must, we must. Lastly, I want to talk briefly about fear and how, it's funny, I have even said myself because I saw it one time in a passing glance, not that I counted myself, and I think I even said this when I said, oh, I've heard that it was said. <laughs> there are 365 instances in the scriptures where we are told to fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. Do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. I looked up on my computer. What are all of these 365 references saying, actually? Because I thought, ah, maybe it would be interesting to read through them. And then I found this very helpful blogger. It was a, a lady, by the way. 
who was pointing out, when you look at the context and what is actually being specifically said in some of these examples of fear not search results coming back, they don't actually mean what is being implied that they mean. Oh, there's one for every day of the year. Fear not, fear not, fear not every day. Don't ever be afraid. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself, as it says in the good book. Wait, what? Rebecca Davis over at heresthejoy.com points out the encouraging fear not verses in the Bible will help us to shed inappropriate fear, which is to say that there is such a thing as appropriate fear. She gives an example that I find memorable and uh, interesting and funny to some extent. Judges 4.18, it was on the list. An Israelite woman, Jael, went to meet King Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. (laughs) So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. Well, that's great, right? Like, that's just very encouraging. Positive and encouraging, Caleb. Let me guess. He took a long nap and felt very refreshed, and she gave him a sippy cup of chocolate milk when he woke up, and he was a wise and benevolent king ever after. Right? No. Actually, what comes next is that while he was asleep, the woman, Jael, put a tent peg through his temple. (laughs) She killed him. He was a king of the Canaanites, by the way. He was not a good and godly man who was seeking appropriate comfort. He didn't need comfort, actually. Is that fear not something you're going to put in vinyl on the wall I think not, right? (laughs) So a fear not, (laughs) in this case, uh, maybe actually proves the opposite point, that sometimes when people tell you to fear not, you should actually be sleeping with one eye open because (laughs) otherwise they might drive a tent peg through your temple. And that's uh, curtains for you. But this is not to say, Just for the record, this is not to say that we are told to be afraid. Consider Matthew chapter 10, verses 19, verses 26, verses 28, verses 31. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Christ says. The context being very important. Luke 12, verses 4, 7, and 32. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Do not be afraid. Little flock, 
for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Again, here is Christ telling us, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Very good. John fourteen twenty seven. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. What will we say then? It has to be either or. It cannot be that you fall back on the DSM-5. With respect to my cousin Tim, and again, with a genuine appreciation for the great length of conversation he's had back and forth with me over this past week plus now, we cannot interpret Scripture according to the DSM-5. I agree, but where this says, do not be afraid, it does not give a qualifier about six months. When it says in Philippians, do not be anxious for anything or about anything, there is nothing about six months. We do not get the DSM-5 categories and you must meet this many of the criteria. So then to my mind, to my way of thinking, you set all of the DSM-5 stuff aside for a moment Yes. Not that you throw it out completely. You still consider it and you say, okay, what in here is worth considering? But internally, sola scriptura, the scriptures alone are our only infallible authority for life and doctrine as Christians. When we see the way Christ relates to people who are fearful or anxious or need to be told not to be fearful, not to be anxious, When we see the way that Paul relates to people who are fearful or anxious, we do well to mark what he says the antidote is. And, yes, if the antidote to fear and anxiety is rejected stubbornly, we are in sin. But the sin, primarily, first and foremost, is not anxiety or fear or anger. Rather, the sin is that we have rejected what God's word says. And so I think it somewhat misses the point, either to embrace uncritically, to use my cousin Tim's term, Disney theology, believe in yourself, faith, trust, and pixie dust, as Mark Elpinski puts it in the gospel according to Disney. The point is not to embrace Disney theology and say, however you feel, that's who you are. If you feel like a woman trapped in a man's body, well, throw on a dress and put on some mascara. Find a nice string of pearls. Neither is the point to rebuke the emotions because the emotions are not the point either way. If they're not the point in favor of that being your true identity for good, that we have to affirm it, then to my way of thinking that the emotions follow our belief, our genuine belief and being doers of the word, reflecting what we genuinely believe. The core thing is that we believe what is correct. And again, maybe I'm splitting hairs here. I don't mean to be. I'm just saying not that anybody who I may say I'm not sure I agree with is taking the opposite position. Rather, just to stake out my own position here, what we really truly believe about God is upstream. 
the emotions themselves have to conform to the truth about God in his word and also in general revelation. If we are stubbornly resistant to that and unwilling to hear it and unwilling to be changed by it, then we will go on suffering. And if that's what we want, and if we love our sin of rejecting what God's word says, well then, the anxiety and the depression that go along with an expectation of judgment are to be expected. And so to some extent you shrug. But I am adamantly opposed to adding to the burdens of those who may be suffering more than we know if we too quickly put them in the clinically depressed or suffering from generalized anxiety disorder categories because they meet the DSM-5 criteria, particularly if there may be a medical cause for that, which we just haven't arrived at yet because we haven't tested for the right things yet. We haven't gone to the right specialist yet, for one. For two, where my position is, yes, let's talk about Bible study. Let's talk about prayer. Let's talk about obedience, regardless of how you feel. I place special emphasis on regardless how you feel. And I worry that to dwell over much on the fact that people are feeling a certain way and to say we need to get them to repent of feeling that certain way is to some extent to feed into the premise that how they feel is so terribly, terribly important. Yes, let's talk about what we really believe about God and about ourselves and about one another. Absolutely. Yes, let's encourage people to not be fearful, to not let the sun go down on their anger, to be slow to anger. Yes, let's require that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Let's require that each one speaks the truth with his neighbor. But let's not go repenting of things which we have a permission for, like, for instance, being angry and not sinning, Ephesians 4, 26. Like, for instance, giving encouragement instead of a stern rebuke, like in Isaiah 35, 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. If someone is stubbornly arguing with that, rejecting that. The sin is not how they feel. The sin is that their will is bound up in denying the truth about God. Don't rebuke them for feeling the way they're feeling. Deny them the right to act however they please just because they feel a certain way. Deny them the right to say whatever they want, regardless whether it's true, simply because they feel a certain way. That's what I'm trying to say. That's my position. That's what I think is correct and wise. I still have more to learn to be entirely fair and even-handed. But I do feel and believe and think altogether and am now acting (laughs) in accordance (laughs) with my own internal world accordingly that this is where the emphasis belongs. But more to come, I trust, Just as I said with the last episode, by no means that I expect that was going to be exhaustive. Neither do I think this episode will be exhaustive. Surely there is more that can be said and should be said and ought to be said. This is sufficient for now. I'm content. 
and not anxious and not angry and not fearful. <laughs> Let not your heart be troubled. <laughs> I got to run though. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. Opinions are immunity to being told you're wrong. Paper, rock, and scissors, they all have their pros and cons. And all of us, we will endure just like we always have. But you just can't be too sure how long this will last. We control the chaos In the back of our minds Our problems seem so small But they grow on us Like gravity But gravity still makes us fall You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. 